0: you're listening to the broadway podcast network this friday your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in disney pixar's inside out 2 it's time to greet your
1: team riley it's anger let me at him
0: fear safety checklist is complete disgust
1: ew ew sadness is
0: in the house oh no hello
2: We did not see. We could not, but she did.
0: And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to Stage Left, a bi monthly podcast where we talk about the latest shows on Broadway and beyond. I'm your host, Rob Russo, writer, theater critic, and founder of stageleft.nyc, and co-host and co-producer of the Fabulous Invalid podcast, also on the Broadway Podcast Network. This podcast provides a platform for younger critics and theater journalists with the goal of broadening the cultural conversation to elevate and include as many diverse perspectives as possible.
1: I'm dying to know what's across the road, what's behind the wall, what's around the corner. And what will it take till
0: I find my way? Will it be today? Will it be too late? Wait till you see what's next. Just Joining me, me this week are Lewis Peitzman, a freelance culture writer with bylines in the New York Times, Vulture, Time, and BuzzFeed, in addition to his weekly newsletter, High Drama, which covers housewives, horror, and theater. Thanks for having me. Yeah, delighted to have you here. Uh, you're what Helen Shaw would call a polymath, I believe, with those different... Whatever whatever Helen says yeah. is right. That's that's good advice. And Jose Solis, freelance theater critic and writer with bylines of the New York Times, TDF Stages, Backstage, and the magazine America, which we learned is read by the Pope. <laughs> uh, in addition to co-hosting the podcast and web series Token Friends, and serving on the nominating committee of the Drama Desk. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're delighted to have both of you this week to talk about three really great shows. We're still catching up with the fall season because not much has opened yet. Uh, in the new year. So we're going to dive back in and talk about uh, Tina, the Tina Turner musical, David Byrne's American Utopia, and The Inheritance. So three big shows that opened last fall. First show we're going to talk about is uh, Tina, the Tina Turner musical. For those listening at home who don't know what that is, I think the title sort of tells you exactly what it is. It's pretty straightforward. It's a biomusical about Tina Turner. Um, what did we think?
1: Oh, wow. Um, you know, <laughs> I went in really uh, dubious because I, I feel like biomusicals are a trend that needs to probably go away, mm-hmm. or uh, <laughs> there needs to be fewer of them. But um, I mean, for me, it was worthwhile just for Adrian Warren, yes. and I think that that's probably a popular opinion, that I could look past a lot of the issues I had with the book, uh, yeah. thanks to her performance. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that 100%, Jose. I realized
2: going into this that I didn't know much of a Tina Turner's catalog, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. So I was sitting there and I was like, I don't think I've ever heard this song before, but wow, she's killing it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because so many of these musicals are built on like the nostalgia, right? That the audience brings to the show. And for folks of our generation, I feel like we don't know as much about Tina Turner or her catalog, unless we've sought it out or we've happened to come across it in the course of our own cultural education. Because her last big hurrah, hurrah was sort of in the early 80s, right, with mm-hmm. Private Dancer.
1: Right, I mean, so the, the show kind of ends well before now. Right, which yes. is
0: <laughs> That's exactly right, yeah. And, you know, Lewis, you touched on something that's exactly right. I, I saw it in London uh, last year, and I was going sort of mostly to check the box because I was like, okay, like, this is a big show. It's probably going to come to Broadway. I should see it in London. I'm here. Um, but I, I had a sense of like weariness about these musicals on the heels of The Cher Show and uh, Summer, the Donna Summer musical, uh, and Carol King. And there was even a, J- a Janis Joplin musical a couple years ago that I saw in D.C. before I came to Broadway. Um, but I have to say, uh, I actually really enjoyed this show because I thought the the structure of it was very like direct right like there was no sort of framing device mapped onto it it was just her story and it was in a way i kind of enjoyed that because the story itself is so compelling
1: it it is compelling it's also not super different from all the other biomusical stories i don't know that it's that i mean they kind of all follow a similar structure yeah. and so i feel like I, i've seen a similar story before i don't know that with someone else in that role, I would have felt as compelled by it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because when I I saw it in London, um, Adrian was out the night I went. And I saw Jenny Fitzpatrick um, I don't know who Jenny is, but she was terrific. Um, and she, you know, the, the show ends, I don't think this is much of a spoiler because it's all over social media, with this, you know, concert, right? Uh, where she, Adrian Warren becomes, I mean, she has been Tina Turner the whole time and she's been, you know, blowing our minds. But it's like the moment you've been waiting for, right? The whole show. It's been teased the whole way through and she just goes all out and you're finally like in a concert. Um, I had that exact same experience when I saw it in London with Jenny. So, uh, you know, I don't know if, maybe if I saw them back-to-back, I'd I'd be able to, like, pick apart what Adrian does that makes her this incredible star. Um, and she actually doesn't even do it eight times a week, right? Right. On Broadway. I don't um, think anyone could. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, seriously. Uh, if you haven't, you should Google the the appearance that they did on The Late Show. Uh, she sings uh, River Deep Mountain High and hits notes that I don't think any human has ever hit before on my television. <laughs> uh, it's pretty remarkable. Um, but Adrian Warren, right? I mean, she is the, the headline of the show.
2: Yeah, I kind of wish that the entire show had just been a concert. Well, she, she, her like reenacting a concert mm. and talking about her life rather right. than like having all the extra characters. That's what I wanted
0: the Donna Summer musical to be. Right. Like just give us the concert, especially mm-hmm. Donna Summer because while I agree with you that like structurally it's not too different, uh, Tina, from these other musicals, I do think that Tina Turner's story has more peaks and valleys than, say, Carol King or Donna Summer, which I felt like both of those shows were just all rise. And then Donna Summer just sort well, of they, disappeared. Well, they glossed
1: over the homophobia in Donna Summer's oh, later oh. life. So <laughs> well, they, they could have had more of a, of, was, of a valley there, but they decided to <laughs> kind of, you know, move past that That's quickly. real. No, there
0: was that awful, like, Mia culpa scene, right? Where she, like,
1: well, gave she, this she, apology right. from,
0: from, behind the, from beyond the grave. It was
1: so awful. I mean, who among us? But I... <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I but I kind of felt the way Jose felt about, yeah. um, you know, being like, I don't really want to see just like a reenactment of a concert on Broadway. And at the same time, the book scenes in Tina were the weakest parts for me. And, yes. and the songs yeah. work best when they're just being performed as songs, when it's right. you know, diegetic. I just felt like that was what I wanted to see more of. Yeah. And so at the end, that's like, the, you know, the the best part of the entire show is like the last 10 minutes. Right, right. So I, I just, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have minded just that. Totally. I agree with
2: that. Yeah, although there's also something that I, you know, that struck me. And yeah, it's very similar to all the other uh, bio-musicals. But the book had something that I had never seen in a bio-musical before. Mm. And it's that it, it kind of like teased about exploring Tina's spiritual life. Mm. And we had all those moments where it was hinted at. But it never, I'm assuming that they, they were like, no, you cannot have like religious stuff or spiritual stuff on Broadway. And maybe that that kept them from like going all the way with it. But I was like, I wish we could see more about this. Because I love moments in which... The uh the, the the book scenes like allude to her, you know, spirituality being connected to her relationship with other women mm. and like the legacy of her grandma, for instance, and her mm. mom. And then I ended up just imagining because we really don't need the Ike scenes anymore. Like I think <laughs> we all know he was horrible to her. Yeah. And I mean, what's love got to do with it does a very good job of showing <laughs> us that that movie's like great at that. Uh so I kinda wonder what a, an old female Tina musical would have been like with mm. all the Ike bullshit and like the, the white guy that she falls in love with at the end. She's like, oh, you changed my life and all that stuff.
1: It's like, we don't need men. They're we still together no. Yeah, they are, they are still together. Uh, the German man that Tina Turner has <laughs> met when she was there. there they are, they're still yeah. together. Wow. Um, I, I do think the spirituality was interesting and I thought the show opens with sort of the promise of that because mm-hmm. she's chanting and even though it 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 is very traditional in a lot of, a lot of ways, it has this kind of weird, surreal opening and then it Loses that and goes straight into like right. here's a straightforward biomusical, mm-hmm. you know, telling of, of her life. Um, I could have used more of that. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that that for shows like for biomusicals, I like when they kind of take chances in in weird ways. I thought the share show worked for me because it sort of unpacked and subverted the the expectations of of what a biomusical is. And I think that um, you know, for Tina, I would love to see more of that. I love that like you know, they just kind of do the Mad Max song and it's it's about <laughs> her, her mom dying, which feels very, you know, not on point, but somehow works. It's just like, it's totally out there and and wild. Um, So more of that in biomusicals. Yeah, I agree.
0: I mean, I I loved the device in the Cher show of having the three shares. I thought it was really smart and I feel like a lot of folks sort of made fun of it or maybe because it came on the heels of the, of the Dawn of Summer musical where it was so poorly done there. Here, I, I to me, it really allowed for like a real psychological portrait of Cher to emerge. That you wouldn't have gotten that, that 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 I did not get
1: from from the Donna Summer musical. Um, well, they were they were literally in conversation with yes, each other, so they were yes. they were you know, and also we got things like that. we got like to avoid the creepiness of like you know adult Sunny hitting on teenage Share by bringing in like sunny right. older Share, and it's like that it's okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was very smartly done. I feel like a lot of that craft was not was not fully appreciated last season, but this season we have Tina. Um, i I'm, I'm interested to see what will happen to this form um, because. Based off the box office, I think we're going to keep seeing these types, of, these types of shows. And what's interesting is that all three of the... Well, there's also Gloria Estefan on your feed. How can I forget? Okay. Right? All these women are alive. I'd be interested to see what will happen when someone makes a biomusical about uh, a major you know, musical act or artist who is no longer with us. And, well, and whether or not that, that critical distance
1: will allow for a better
0: show. I don't know it if you've Michael heard, Jackson. but Michael Jackson yeah. is,
1: is uh, having a musical very soon. You know, I
0: set myself up for that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Well, I'm intrigued by that. I mean, there's a lot to be horrified by that musical, but I'm, I'm intrigued on that point to see what what, what, what what you're able to do when the artist himself is no longer alive. Because Tina Turner is a producer of Tina the Tina Turner musical, right? Like, it's very clearly has her... Her imprint on it, and I'm sure she was involved at every step of the process, and that might be why we didn't get to see more of the Mm. spiritual stuff that Katori Hall was maybe picking up on and wanted to, you know, push further on. But
1: maybe Tina edited. I don't know. That's pure supposition. Um, But I mean, don't you feel like part of the problem though is that the people who are going to these shows are like diehard fans. Who oh. don't want to see the kind of messiness of right uh, Donna Summer? I mean, is not alive, but but you know, good point. We, I think <laughs> that the the problem is people who are going do not want the the dark side of things, the ugly side. The reason that the Cher show I think was allowed to kind of go into like her infomercials is because Cher has a sense of humor about herself. Yes, and so yes. even though she was heavily involved in the production, she was like, let's make fun of this, let's mm-hmm. make a joke about Sonny Bono dying, let's like you know, just have fun with it. And I think that. Um, that is a rare thing, and I and I mm. I don't I want to believe that the Michael Jackson musical will really go there. I just don't entirely trust that's going to happen.
2: Yeah, yeah. The only way that could happen if is if we ever got like an unofficial musical, but mm-hmm. that would never happen, right? It would have to be like a parody. They would never yeah. uh, their kind of <laughs> Well, like, there was this. apparently
0: that 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 musical. Uh, I don't know if it was a real musical, but uh, in LA recently, that was like the story of Michael Jackson told from the perspective of his glove. Did right. you read about that?
1: <laughs> yes, it's yes, yes. I read a
0: blurb and was like, "This is so weird." I just <laughs> moved on.
1: But the conceit of that show was actually really unsettling. So okay. the less said about it, the better. But but yes, I think that yeah, that's that's the that's the way to go is just yeah. you know yeah. parody.
0: Yeah, there you go. Okay. Well, speaking of someone who is very much alive, David Byrne uh, and American Utopia. That was a very jarring transition, but here we are. Um, American Utopia is currently playing at the Hudson Theater on Broadway uh, through February 16th, so if you are intrigued um, after our conversation, go grab a ticket. Um, For those who don't know, uh, American Utopia was the um, last album, studio album that David Byrne produced in 2018, and this Broadway run of the show sort of culminates a world tour that he did um, that is the album, but also um, other songs from his catalog from back to his days with the Talking Heads. Um, I absolutely loved every damn second of this show. I, I'm a like casual fan of the Talking Heads and David Byrne. I know who he is. You know, music was you know in my childhood. Um, but oh my god, I was so blown away by this show. Uh, I don't know how you guys felt. There's a lot of nodding going on, but <laughs> I was very sick when
2: I went to see it. Oh no. I, and I could turn that I saw the, the light at the end of the tunnel and everything. I was like, if David
0: Byrne and his banner, they're waiting for me. This <laughs> might not be such a bad thing. Is it a, is it a show? Is, is it theater? Is it a concert? I don't know. And I kind of don't care because I just loved it so much. Um, but I've never been in the theater where I've experienced music coming to life so vividly. Between the movement and the actual musicians on stage. And the whole show is 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 staged by Annie B. Parson, who's a visionary choreographer. Um, and the musicians are all, f- you know f- free from any chords or entanglements or anything. They move about the stage almost like members of a marching band, um, but in choreographed movement from start to finish. And I was sitting in like row D which if you can afford to uh, sit there because I I experienced the show free of the mix in the house. Like the music was literally just coming off the stage to me unmixed, Um, which was an incredible experience because these musicians who he's handpicked, I think there's 11 of them, and they're from around the world, um, are extraordinary performers.
1: Yeah, I mean I had the, the experience that Jose had at Tina realizing that, I, that there's a lot of David Byrne talking heads music that I do that not know. Yeah. Um, but I also really, really enjoyed it. And I and I thought that it kind of I mean, I don't know if it's a concert or a show either. Yeah. But I would rather if I'm going to see musicians kind of with these residencies on Broadway, which mm-hmm. is like a new trend, right. I want it to be a fully formed show the way that this was. Yes. I wanted to have that kind of choreography and not just be with like no shade to Bruce Springsteen, someone, you know, sitting down and telling stories and playing songs, because like that to me is not the best use of a broadway theater where we could mm-hmm. have you know full productions.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean this this was like I said capping a world tour and they brought in Alex Timbers um specifically for for the last two engagements in in Boston and in New York and I wonder if he helped Make it less of a of a concert. I'm doing air quotes right now and more of a show, or if it always was, I don't know. I didn't see the earlier iterations. But you actually just brought up something which I made notes on that I wanted to talk about, and you're probably looking at my, my, I, I not, my I'm, not, I'm not peeping. I'm not peeping. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't saying you were you were cheating. <laughs> um, no, but how do we feel about you know these, these types of acts or artists coming to Broadway and using Broadway theaters to, to do you know something that like like what Bruce Springsteen did or what David Byrne is doing with American Utopia I mean I think there's a there's
1: a difference I mean there's, yeah, there's definitely yeah, a distinction yeah. um, I I just feel like you know there's a limited number of Broadway theaters 41. and, and it, there's <laughs> you know there's so many and there's some that are some shows that are never going to close Phantom um, Chicago so we we like we, I don't you know I'm very like nervous about how that space gets yeah, used yeah. and I because we also have so many bio musicals like how many theaters do we need to devote to just hearing these songs people already know. I mean, right. is that really what we want to do? And obviously, they bring in audiences mm-hmm. and and make a ton of money. Um, but yeah, I I I don't know how I feel about it. I do feel like with American Utopia, at least, like I felt like I saw a show. Yes. So for me, I I'm very comfortable with that show being there, and it it is. Very life affirming and oh a bit of yeah. a spiritual experience. Yeah, so. totally.
0: Now, I was walking on air when I walked out of that theater. Yeah. I was like, I wanted to dance. A <laughs> <laughs> did it cure your sickness? I mean, I felt much better, and I th- I felt
2: like I had died and gone to heaven. So that's not that bad. <laughs> but also, like, it's something that it reminded me of a lot because of the form and how you know how challenging. I was like, was this a show or a concert or all that? Right. Was like, it made me think a lot about an inconvenient truth, which remember it was just like a documentary, mm-hmm. but it was basically just like this guy just. Talking with a PowerPoint presentation. I'm like, how is this that's so basic and so, I don't know, uh, simple making, you know, having such an emotional impact Mm. and uh, effect on me? And I was sitting there just thinking the same. I was like, this is, I was like, I want to think that I'm more cynical than to really let this wash over me Mm. and, and make me feel happy. But I mean, David Byrne won. (laughs) Yeah.
1: <laughs> he also does give a warning about climate change. So yes. I do so it's so it's not totally dissimilar and he's doing that. I mean it makes me think of like what the constitution means to me in terms mm. of like what, you know, how do we define a play and and that was very much a play, but it was also something that people hadn't seen a lot of which is someone standing on a stage and talking to you for, you know, an hour and a half and I think that um I'm I'm all for, you know, expanding the form and and our definition of of what theater is. I think that it just could also be easy to bring a bunch of major rock stars onto Broadway and just sell out theaters that way, which feels like maybe the wrong move.
0: Yeah, and I hope that's not what happens. Um, I know they used the the Lunt-Fontaine for a series of small engagements this past summer before Tina came in, uh, which I guess is a clever way to make money when you know you have another engagement coming.
1: But I would hate to see that become what happens long term. Yeah, as a as a way to like kill time. Yeah. I'm fine. with it. You know, I can't. Right, right. I can't Regina them, Spector to can you know? Can yeah, come Regina Spektor. Yeah, 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 and she's and she's great. Like yeah. that's that's fine. But but yeah, as a, as a long term plan, I'm not I'm not a fan. Uh, David Byrne is doing American Utopia in the theater, you know, very consciously versus someone who just like you know gets gets booked in this theater basically <laughs> and, and is going to play a normal show on stage right. um, without much regard for like how. You know, people in the upper mes might might be experiencing the show. You know, not every show works in, in those venues. So I think if you're if the artists are considering it and really like trying to, you know, put on a a real Broadway production, whatever that means, then like yeah. that seems like a, a different thing.
0: Yeah. But back to your point about Bruce Springsteen. I mean, I not not being a Bruce Springsteen fan, I don't I mean, I know a couple of his songs. I went to that with my father. He was very nice. He bought me a ticket. We went together. Um, It was his, like, second or third time. He was in heaven. He loved it. It was, like, the thing he took his best friends to. I sat there, and I was so bored. (laughs) I I did not care what this man had to say. I didn't find him compelling. The songs were so stripped down. Um, Whereas I feel like even if you don't know David Byrne's music, if you're not familiar with his oeuvre, you could walk into American Utopia blind and just completely be immersed in it and love it.
1: Totally. I, I mean, I think that I, I also feel resentment to Bruce Springsteen because they <laughs> did that thing of the Tonys where he he like talked and played. You know, remember yes. that, that like oh, long yeah. segment and oh, I was yeah. like, there are shows that I love that are mm-hmm. not performing and we are watching Bruce Springsteen because apparently we're we're going to trying to attract a certain demographic to watch the Tonys, which will never happen. Right. Um, right. And we're wasting time. And so, yeah. yes, I, I felt bored by that. I did not see the Bruce <laughs> Springsteen show because... Well, my dad loves Bruce Springsteen, he would rather see actual Broadway shows, which I'm grateful for. So um (laughs) uh Well the
0: tickets were outrageous And they were saying I wouldn't have gone if I had not been
1: Um, my father. They're not handing out comps to that one either. Um but but I yeah, I um I I have a a bias there toward um toward Bruce Springsteen, even though I do enjoy some of his music and I'm sure he's perfectly lovely. Yeah. Um that's not my kind of show. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Okay. Well. For folks listening who are not aware, uh, this play by Matthew Lopez uh, is a modern adaptation of E.M. Forrester's novel, Howard's End, uh, that is set among a group of gay men uh, living in present-day New York and grappling with the legacy of the AIDS crisis of the 1980s alongside contemporary questions of uh, community and identity. Uh, It was a smash hit in London. It premiered at the Young Vic and then moved to the West End for a sold-out run there came to Broadway, where I think the, the response has been decidedly mixed, if not hostile, uh, towards this play. <laughs> uh, one of the biggest... I have egg on my face because we, for my other podcast, we did a little spring-fall uh, preview and I was like, oh, this is the play everyone's going to be talking about. Like They are talking well, about Well, sure, it. <laughs> but maybe not in the way that the, uh, that the producers probably would have hoped. Um, so let me lay my cards out on the table, uh, in case uh, Lewis and Jose, you don't know. But I actually really like this play. Um, I understand completely the critiques of it, and I have enjoyed reading them, and I agree with with much that has been said, Um, and yet there's a part of me that that just really enjoyed seeing it and that I don't want to, like, snuff out to be, you know, sort of with the Joneses. Um, But... uh, I wanted you both on this show specifically f- to talk about this show, uh, The Inheritance, because I think you both have really interesting perspectives uh, to offer about it that um, fill a sort of uh, a, a, a gap that perhaps I, I did not perceive in seeing the show. So I will open the floor to the both of you, whoever wants to go first. I'll let Jose To share. To share you what like you it think. either? No, no, no,
2: no. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, fear, I was like, oh, God, are you going to gang up? No, no, no,
0: no. Oh, okay. This is also a safe space, you know.
2: Um, um, you know, I, ironically, I in a, in a way I think that I also enjoyed it because it it lends itself to be this like trashy soap opera. Yes. <laughs> but that's what I wish it had been if it had committed to that and if it had been mm. just like we're gonna just be like queers folk with less like sex, <laughs> um, and you know all of that I would have been I would have been in right if it if if it would have been you know like we're gonna be like that bit and stuff. But instead, what bothers me so much about the show is that it also had has that subtitle about like it being like a story about gay men today or something Mm -hmm. like that, and just by saying by adding that, it's just like erasing like an entire you know amount of people, mostly people of color and people of different uh, shapes also, and people who do not fit the stereotypical insta gay. Mm-hmm. You know, look right because, mm-hmm. like, nothing made me want to, you know, like get on stage and kick the characters more than every time that the lead played by Kyle uh, Solar was referred to as like plain looking right. or like unattractive. <laughs> yeah, so and, like, I don't know how he does it, right? Yeah, let's be hard a freaking model.
1: <laughs>
2: and in order for a play to convince, uh, well, to convince me in this case to follow it along with that. Everything else has to be like pure camp and pure trash, but it wasn't because then there were these moments when he was trying to do like the socially conscious thing, right? Or moments when he was trying to talk about drugs and about addiction and about, you know, the perils of, of the uh, the entertainment world. And I don't even want to talk about the gay Republican in it because like I'm just gonna like <laughs> jump. I I, 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 right I want to talk about yeah. The yeah Republican Lewis will in. handle <laughs> that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I just I mean the the play you know is about you know, able-bodied cis white men, um, and there are some characters of color who are literally on the sidelines. Yeah. And the play has more interest in, like, showing the emotional interiority of a Trump supporter than it does of showing any of these, you know, characters of color and and, and any sort of emotional interiority they might have. Instead, mm. its its moral seems to be that, like, rich, older, white Trump supporters are people too. Um, which is a take. Um, <laughs> I, aside from those very obvious issues, um, I thought it was incredibly regressive. I thought it was sex negative, and mm-hmm. I was surprised by how um, it seemed to delight in punishing uh, character sexuality in a way that I thought was was really sort of damaging and and um, very '80s and very like just that there are there are two big sex scenes in that show that are kind of portrayed as like these sort of hot um, orgy scenes that then turn into a character, um, literally bleeding. And mm. there's a, there's this kind of like this, this scare, this aid scare. And it's just like, it's very, it feels very old fashioned uh, and very damaging. And, it, and it's, I don't think that like a, a gay play needs to tell everyone's story and be all things to all people at the same time, like this is the play we're putting on Broadway and this is getting the, the widest audience. So you have to ask like, why is this the story being told? And what is this trying to say about like, gay men today? Um, I think that having a brunch scene where you like shout out trans women of color, it's not actually doing anything but reminding people of what you're not showcasing.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, well, one of the reasons why I wish we still had 110 opening night critics is because <laughs> everyone has such different perspectives. And, and I, I, I loved reading your piece that you wrote about this, Lewis, because it illuminated an aspect of the show that I had not even given two seconds of thought, thought to, right, which is the, the way that, that the sex is depicted on stage. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have to say, my, my big takeaway from the play and what I like about the play and why, you know, why I think I enjoyed it is I don't think that we see enough uh, representation in media of intergenerational relationships among gay men and that's something that has been very important to me and just sort of in my own, you know, life. Um, and and to see it reflected on stage, perhaps, you know, not as, as well as we might have wished, um, in and of itself to me was very gratifying and very moving and very poignant um, because there is a generation, you know, we're all in our 30s, um, 20 years plus older than us, who really lived through a time where their friends were dying left and right. And it doesn't really, I feel like it doesn't get talked about enough among our generation. I feel like if you're like, this play is almost like meant for us versus folks who are younger than us or older than us um, because, it's, uh, because of that reminder um, that I, I, I don't know, just personally, just my own, you know, my own lived experience, I feel like we don't really talk about. I, I um, was very fortunate to meet and get to know at the end of his life, um, Dick Leisch, who was um, one of the earliest prominent um, LGBT activists in New York. Uh, he led the Sip-In at Julius. Um, you know, this is years before Stonewall. Um, and just in the two years that I was around him and his friends, now they're, granted, they were much older, they were in their 70s and 80s. Um, for me, it was such an education, the perspective that they were able to offer and, you know, the the lessons that they were able to teach and just the model that they were able to give of of how to live their lives. Because I've always felt that something that people don't think about enough is the fact that gay men, for the most part, or gay people, for the most part, are minorities in our own families, right? Like, unless... You come from a family where your parents were also gay, or you know your siblings. Um, chances are you're the only one in your family, and that's distinct from, say, you know, uh, being a racial minority, where in the in the world writ large you might be a, a minority, but in your own family at least you know you have that model and that support and that shared experience. Um, so as a result, gay people make our own families, right? We, we forge our own community, and I, I appreciated what the play. The, the the questions, at least, that I, I felt it was getting at around what it means in 20... I guess the play is taking place in 2016, 2018. Um, what it means to be a gay a gay man, specifically, uh, and you would probably say a white gay man, um, in this world and, and what what our community is or isn't. I don't think the play offers really any answers, and maybe it doesn't do it as artfully as as I think we probably all three of us would agree we would wish it had... Um, but I, I at least appreciated that about it.
1: I, I totally hear you on that. Yeah. I think if it's that long, <laughs> it should offer some answers, or at least like get close. <laughs> it is some. that's right. I,
0: I haven't said it. it's two parts, and it's a six and a half hour running time. I, ahead, I
1: think that yes, the you know the, the representation of the intergenerational sort of gay relationships are worth representing. I think that it's sort of troubling that in this play that what we get is this character who. Esse- essentially, is like I have bad politics and I don't mm-hmm. care about anyone else. But it's okay because I I live through this generational trauma, which is very very valid that he lived through that, and yeah. and we should have absolute compassion for it. But is really kind of a, a weird takeaway to be like this is why I'm voting for Trump, <laughs> um, which is not exactly what he's saying, but it's kind of what he's saying. Yeah. Um, I think that while the play has a lot of like respect for that generation. Um, it, it weirdly ha- seems to have a little bit of um, a, a lack of care for people who are living with HIV now. Mm. Um, there, you know, there's a there's a character who um, really who, who who becomes HIV positive in the play, and I thought the way that that character was treated was sort of trauma porn. I mean, he's you know on the street eating peanut butter with his hand out of a jar. It's it, people are throwing things at him. It, it's really kind of um, perverse to me, mm-hmm. and I think there was just like a real lack of um, yeah of care and compassion for. Um, you know, people who are living with HIV now who are not going to be these upper-middle-class right. white people that are being shown as the as the main characters who are all aspiring to greater wealth. Right.
2: So I also wonder, you know, like, would this play have worked or would this person have written this play if the, if the mentoring case wasn't like a hot daddy type like John Benjamin mm. Hickey? Like, you know, like, because <laughs> to be honest, there's a lot of ageism also in the queer community and like if you go to any of these bars that you that you speak of, you know, like in the West Village, you're never gonna see like the young guys like going to the older men for advice and for history. That's something very romantic and something that I don't think really exists to the point where I feel like the inheritance is a play that Marco
1: Rubio would have written if he was gay. <laughs> Wow! I also, I mean, also that relationship is is sexualized in the play. You yes, know, it is it is, yes, it is yes. like I mean, there is there is you know he has he has the one older friend who it's they they have a purely sort of platonic relationship. But then mm-hmm. once he dies, spoiler alert, then he ends up you know <laughs> with his husband. Yeah. It's not it's not really. Um, I think that there is something really valuable in the model that you are talking about, yes. and I do think that that there are people like you who who seek that out. I think that also like what we're seeing in the inheritance is not that, um, and I think that. It's great to see something where you can kind of um bring your own experiences and, and project that onto the play and take something away from it because of that. And I think that's um there's something really special about that. But in terms of like what's actually on the page and on stage, I don't I don't see that. Mm. Yeah. I'm excited, however, to see how you know how someone <clears throat> a different writer
2: might grab something that I might consider my inheritance. It's also like mm. you know, something British and extremely like upper class. Uh, it's not something that I would like to see my inheritance like at all. And but I do would love to see you know people taking like Giovanni's room for instance or James Baldwin or like other great uh, queer writers of color and giving us plays inspired by them and creating like a larger inheritance than this just one
1: monolith of whiteness. Yeah, I, I think that um you know the other part of this um just from as, in terms of like how the show is being received in New York, I think part of the issue is that it, it doesn't. Feel like a, a real New York play to me. It feels like I think it probably worked better in the UK where they were not. It was not in New York. Um, I, I think also um, the model of two plays, paying for two different plays, um, makes it very hard for people to see this. It's very expensive. It's a lot easier in London where plays are cheaper. Mm. So you have shows like you know Harry Potter and the Inheritance that come here and um, do not get the same level of success because like people just can't afford to go see. You know, if you're paying two hundred dollars a ticket, which is you know how much these tickets cost, you can't really be paying for that twice to see to see a show that got, I mean, here mixed reviews at best. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I think that the economics of it are something that are um, really really worth talking about because uh, I agree a hundred percent. You know, two part plays generally do not have a good history on Broadway. I don't think any have really made any money other than this Harry Potter, and even Harry Potter is. Is struggling. If you if you watch you know closely the, the the box office numbers, the average ticket price for that show has plummeted. Uh, people are not paying full price to go see um, Harry Potter. And it, you know the, the the other big example recently was was in America, which um, the producers of that show were very noble to bring it to Broadway and in the way that they did. But I don't think that show made a cent um, because people were not paying full price to go see two plays. Uh, you know, two separate shows as part of the experience of of seeing the play. And I think that's what's happening here. You know, it's, it's, in, it's interesting that when they brought this, they do part one five times a week, and they do part two three times a week. Um, I think they, they have learned, the, you know, the producers have tried to learn the lesson of, of what happened with Angels in America, but your point still stands, which is that it is so expensive to see this play. And that in and of itself feels like, you know, uh, it, in in hand with so much of the criticism of it, right, of it being about this 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 class of well off white gay men, and then oh yeah, in order to see it, you've got to be very wealthy and you've got to <laughs> shell out hundreds and hundreds of dollars.
1: Have your dad take you to Bruce Springsteen? Have right. your daddy take you to the Inheritance? Oh, I like that.
0: <laughs> That's good. That's very good.
1: I, I mean, I, the the thing that troubles me about about all of this is that I think that we <clears throat> we take the wrong lessons from a lot of things like this, and mm. I think that people might look at us and say this like heralded like the gay play of the generation, which. Again, I would not use that terminology, but people were saying that about the inheritance comes to Broadway and can't really hit here. Right? Are we going to take a risk on on other queer stories? Are we going to you know are we going to even bother because if the inheritance can't do it, you know what can? Um, I think that is the wrong lesson. But I also worry that producers you know see the numbers and say like maybe I don't want to take a chance and maybe right. I don't want to tell a story, especially a story about, about someone who's not white, who's gender nonconforming, who's you know has a disability. I I just worry that. Um, the Inheritance kind of like casts a shadow over, over what can then be done on Broadway in the future.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because oddly enough, rather perversely, going into the season, it felt like The Inheritance was almost like the safe hit when, you know, substantively 20 years ago, you'd have been like, yeah, sure, the two-part play about a bunch of gay men is is, is the safe hit, sure. Um, whereas The Bigger Gamble felt like slave play, which, you know, certainly is not what you think of when you think of as a traditional you know, play on Broadway um, in terms of pushing boundaries with the substance of it. Um, and, you know, Safe Play just closed, unfortunately, um, because the theater is booked. Um, but, you know, did very good business and was, you know, the attendance was very high, if not the average ticket price. But, you know, it was, it was the talk of the town this fall. I felt like everyone, would, I was sending all my friends to go see Safe Play. And one by one, everybody was blown away by it. Whereas you know i took some friends to see the inheritance but i don't know that i would feel as comfortable recommending it to everyone uh, even though i personally liked it so
1: i don't know what that Maybe means it's but. too long to recommend to people yeah right yeah <laughs> it's a commi- it's a commitment yeah yeah but i mean yeah as you said slave play um did great business and did not do as big of numbers because the prices were deliberately kept down of tickets. That, that too, yeah. uh, to kind of to, to invite more people into the theater, which yeah. um, you know was a was a was a very conscious choice they made that I think um, uh, was a was a really good one because yeah. you you want um, to be slate plays a show that everyone should see, mm-hmm. um, and I think that a show like The Inheritance, where you're you're you don't have really cheap tickets or you have very few cheap tickets and you have to see see it you know twice, <laughs> um, you're you're sending a message you know not consciously, but you're sending a message that this is not for everyone, that if mm-hmm. you can't afford it, maybe it's not for you. Right. Yeah.
0: I almost wish they had just produced part one this season and then waited to see what the reaction. I also would think be. That
1: if I hadn't seen part two, I would have been less hostile about it as a whole. Oh interesting. I okay. think part two is when yeah. I really got angry, whereas part one I was like, this is sort of like it's it's kind of fluff to me, but it's, you know, I, I get it. And yeah. part two is when I was like a little bit more distressed.
0: Yeah. Well something that we haven't touched on is that the, the structure of the play itself is sort of the telling of a novel that is being written while you're watching it. Um, and so what, what it results in, and this is a critique that I 100% agree with, uh, what it results in is an unfortunate amount of telling and not showing via uh, narration for a good portion of the show. Uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of information that is shared in the form of a character standing on, tage, on stage telling it to you instead of you actually witnessing characters in a drama you know, acting out or living—you know—the the scene that is being described. I almost wonder if the inheritance would work better as a novel.
2: Well, I mean, it did when it was. <laughs> well, Zend. well, you know
0: exactly what I mean. Like, like, like a, a, no, a modern novelistic adaptation of Howard's End. Because
2: I was sitting there and I was also thinking, like, this writer is so unimaginative that every beat—it was following Howard's End beat by beat—and right. I love that book. So there were no moments for. an... 20-hour play to not have any moments of surprise was driving me insane because he was just following the exact same plot twists and turns and just changing the characters to gay men. And I was sitting there thinking I probably would have read the book already in the time that I've spent, you know, sitting in this theater (laughs) and I also could have watched the Emma Thompson movie and, you know, what better gay icon than Emma Thompson to go through Howard's End,
1: right? I, I think that the problem with so much of that telling instead of showing is that you have these things that would you you're able to say like oh this character is is ugly and no one likes him or they don't really say that <laughs> but basically it's implied or or that he's like an amazing person who's going to change the world without actually telling you what that means at all right and never showing it and it, whatever he discovers about himself and his ability to like change everything is, is to me I don't I don't remember maybe I forgot but I feel like they never really arrived on what that was except that we know that he. Is a great person. Um, it, it's it, it's it's empty, and I think that um, the narration kind of tries to cover that up. Mm. Um, I just again with with it being thirty six hours long, and we're going to keep increasing the length. <laughs> yeah, right, it's just um, getting get longer and longer. Yeah, um, I, you know, there's a lot of you more you could show about who these people are. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah.
0: All righty. Well, we could go on, I think, probably for 20 or 36 hours talking about the inheritance. <laughs> um, clearly, we we all have a lot uh, to say and think about it. Um, and a great way for people who are listening to this to uh, continue the conversation, or, or to at least continue following us, is uh, on social media. So I was wondering if each of you could share with folks listening to this, um, where they can find your work and where they can find you on social media. Jose, we'll start with you.
2: You can find me on Twitter at Jose Solis Mayen and I basically tweet every link to everything I write. Perfect.
1: Um, I'm at Lewis Peitzman on, on Twitter and I also you know, tweet to what I write and my, my newsletter is LewisPeitzman.substack.com, where I write about theater, among other things. Horror and housewives. Horror and housewives.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Great, well thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you. Just around the corner, a new bit of history there, right? Something you all might underestimate.
0: That's it for this week. Stage Left, the podcast is a co-production of the Fabulous Invalid LLC and OM Etc. and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode was edited and engineered by Jamie Dumont and Charles Van Kirk. And special thanks to Jason Robert Brown for our theme song, Wait Till You See What's Next from his spectacular album How We React and How We Recover you can find this podcast online at stageleft.nyc on the Broadway Podcast Network website on iTunes and wherever you listen to podcasts and as always you can read my archive of reviews at stageleft.nyc and find me on Twitter at stageleft underscore nyc thank you for listening I hope you'll tune in next time